Lesson 8. Your Secret Subconscious Self Do you recall the slightly baffled sensation you experienced when a physician to whom you had gone in time of need handed you a prescription? You took the scrap of paper because there was nothing else to do, and on your way to the drugstore, scanned it interestedly, trying to decipher its meaning and especially to figure out what bearing those mysterious hieroglyphics could have on your very real and very personal problem. But you decided, about the time you found the prescription clerk, twere a vain ambition for a mere average man to aspire to understand the cryptic scientific code bandied so nonchalantly between these wise technicians. You confessed it quite over your head, paid the bill, and tried to forget it. Could you have stepped behind the counter and heard the drug clerk translating your prescription to himself at would have amused you to see what agony scientist number one had gone to put into Latin for scientist number two, the simple directions for concocting for you a simple remedy, which in plain United States was merely peppermint or castor oil. The scientists in this case are going on the ancient theory that they would lose your respect and incidentally your money if they came down off their Minerva-like pedestals and told you the everyday contents of this bottle. Moreover, you might be able to make your own medicine next time, apply your own remedy, and then where would they be? Medical science has contributed much to the health and happiness of man, but it could have helped much more and many more had it been placed within the reach of the everyday man as it might easily have been. Now comes a new human science called psychoanalysis, a science destined to do for mankind far greater things than medical science has ever done to cure not only the mind, which the physician overlooks, but physical ailments the physician has never been able to reach. It is not an intricate science. It deals, as do all sciences, with the simple, though stupendous, facts of everyday life. It can be used by every individual who once secures an understanding of it and help him in the solution of his most pressing personal problems. But practically everything that has been given out to date has been, like the prescription, couched in mysterious phraseology and written by scientists to other scientists over the heads of the everyday man whose sufferings they purport to relieve. Musicians will play the ultra-classical, though it put the audience to snoring in eight minutes, and scorn the simple things everybody longs for, because they play not for the people but for their critical contemporaries. Singers sing to their fellow artists. Learned men talk to the learned. Scientific writers write for other scientific writers, all out of fear. Between and around these few are the unlearned, the unmusical, the unscientific, that backbone of the nation, Mr. and Mrs. Everyday American and their children. They are in trouble. Worry, fear, poverty, grief, sorrow, disappointments, and disillusionments overwhelm them. When the struggle becomes acute, the most intelligent go to books for help. Among other things, they read reams on this new and wonderful psychoanalysis. It is about as understandable as the prescription. The reader, like the patient, seeks, struggles, pays the bill, and tries to forget. But he can't forget because the problem is still unsolved, not because psychoanalysis could not have solved it, but because he found nothing understandable to apply to his own troubles. 
Here is a course putting into plain, simple American terms the scientific truths recently discovered about the subconscious mind with definite scientific explanations of exactly what it is, how it works, where it comes from, where and how it so vitally affects your life, plus definite specific instructions for applying this knowledge to your own personal affairs. In short, a prescription in English. It is so plain you can make your own medicine next time, and after a while, perhaps avoid the necessity for remedies altogether. There is nothing in this course a child can fail to understand, yet every word is scientifically accurate and deals with the greatest problems of human life. After all, nothing in the world need be made mysterious. Nature is performing miracles all the time but she speaks a simple language. All the greatest facts of life can be stated in clear, helpful terms and made to do something worthwhile. Here are a few of the hundreds of questions about ourselves which are answered in this pleasurable, practical course. Why are we so different in our dreams from the person we are in real life? How does unhappiness produce disease and why do joy and success cure it? Why do the rich, the powerful, the beloved, and beautiful commit suicide? Why do criminals always go back to the scene of the crime? Why does falling in love improve your mental, physical, and spiritual health? Why do we sometimes hate the one we most love? Why does a wife call her husband just a big boy when he also thinks of her as a mere child? What is the true explanation of love at first sight? Why do we get over our wildest love affairs while tamer ones last through the years? Why do lovers often feel they have met and mated in a previous existence? Why do we take instantaneous and intense dislikes to people? Why do boys fall in love with older women and girls have violent loves for mature men? And how does this reconcile itself to the fact that women dislike to marry men younger than themselves, while the older the man, the younger he wants his wife to be? Why do you change certain details when relating a dream? Why are we afraid of certain things, and why do we avoid certain others without knowing why? Why do we often become angry, morose, elated, or excited over trifles? Why do we forget the names of people we know perfectly well, misspeak ourselves, and say things we don't mean before we realize it? Why are we poor when we want money so badly? What is the secret of every person's supreme subconscious wish? From the deck of a steamer, you see an iceberg. Always afterward, you think of it as consisting of just what you saw, no more and no less. You describe its outlines to your friends and explain its size and shape as being what was visible to your eye. Yet you saw but one-tenth of that iceberg. The other nine-tenths were floating beneath the surface, entirely out of sight. If you have never seen a big iceberg, drop a miniature one into your glass next time you are at a table, and the same thing on a smaller scale will happen. Your mind is like that iceberg. It has its upper and nether parts the conscious and subconscious. The conscious may be likened to the tenth of an iceberg, which is discernible above the surface, for its operations and processes are always apparent to you. 
It consists of the thoughts you think from moment to moment in your waking hours, but lose when you fall asleep. This conscious mind is busy handling the experiences which arise in your environment, the awareness of your surroundings, sensations of what you are doing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, all plans, visualizations, and imaginings which catch and hold your attention are also a part of this surface mind. You express this conscious mind more or less externally and can readily detect its operations. You can open the door on it any instant and catch it at work. Right now, for instance, you can watch your mind thinking of this page and what you are reading. You can look on while it reasons, judges, and decides about what is printed here. In short, this conscious element of your mind is the mind we are all familiar with, the mind we have always known we possessed, the mind dealt with in academic psychology, the mind that does our conscious thinking. But recent discoveries have shown that this surface mind, which we had supposed compromised all our mental processes, is less than one-tenth of the total human consciousness. These discoveries reveal that underneath this conscious mind, part and parcel of it, bound up and wound around it, powerfully influencing it but out of sight, are the submerged nine-tenths called the subconscious. This subconscious is the warehouse in which you have been unconsciously and involuntarily storing away all the impressions, memories, feelings, accumulated force, and aftermaths of everything that has ever happened to you. This means not only all the things you are conscious of having experienced, but millions of sensations you were unaware of at the time. All have stowed themselves away down there in the pigeonhole of that submerged nine-tenths of your consciousness to be heard from later in life. Many of the mysteries about yourself which have baffled, discouraged, or inspired you are solved by the new science of mental analysis, which explains the secret self that lies deeply buried but always active within each of us. The conscious mind may be called the retailer mind. It is compelled to deal with non-essentials, the externals of your hourly experiences, the thousands of details that arise in your immediate environment. But your subconscious mind knows nothing of these. All its power is directed toward the attainment of your deepest desires. It is a wholesaler and does things only in the by and large. It is not so much concerned with what you are doing, saying, or experiencing at this moment as with the mass result of the experiences through which you have already passed, plus the probable effect upon you of those you are now facing. Your subconscious mind does not so much think as feel. It does not believe or reason, as does your conscious mind. It knows. Nothing you see, hear, say, think, do, feel, or experience is ever lost. Each is preserved forever in the deeps of your subconsciousness. It is though you lived in a houseboat on a great ocean, into whose depths something dropped every time you had a thought, a feeling, or any kind of experience whatever. Some of these are of such a nature as to throw overboard the seeds from which would grow beautiful water lilies, ferns, and lacy mosses. Some would bring forth weeds, others poison ivy, 
while others would fringe the shore with great trees whose strength would delight you and whose shade would comfort and bless all who came that way. Some of your deeds and desires would fling into this ocean only trash, chunks of pig iron, bits of wood, baubles, toys, debris, trappings and trimmings of idle moments, dark thoughts, primitive instincts, all would lie there at the bottom of the sea. Divers could find every one. Some distorted, some washed cleaner than when they went in, but each and every one affected in some way by being there. Many of the thoughts and things we had supposed lifeless would turn out to be fertile seeds. They would have sprouted all manner of strange, exotic, ugly, and beautiful plants, each bearing fruit according to its nature and sending up to the ocean's surface the results natural to itself. We do and say many things, which are the result of the things we previously submerged in this subconscious sea. A man does things that are foreign to him, not what he intended. They seem to do themselves. He means to say a certain thing, to express a certain thought, and instead says something entirely different. He forgets the names of people he knows perfectly well, answers no when he means yes, and in a hundred ways entangles himself against his will. He says, that was accidental. I said that unconsciously, or I wasn't myself. But none of these is really true. The fact of the matter is that all of them were done by his subconscious. They are not accidental, but in accordance with the definite law that we tend constantly to express to the outer world, whatever is in the back of our minds. We also tend to forget whatever is displeasing to the ego and to remember whatever is pleasing to it. One of the well-known actors in America told us this. I am often asked to dinners and other social affairs with people in whom I have no interest whatever, people with whom I have nothing in common and with whom I would rather not be bothered. I found that almost invariably, I jotted down these engagements on my calendar for the day following the actual date, and was always being called up afterward and reminded of my absence. After a while, it dawned on me that my subconscious wish not to go caused me habitually, but innocently, to put down the wrong date and always to make the mistake for the day after so that it would be safely over before I could be reminded. I arrived at these conclusions because of another strange experience I was always having of putting down engagements with personal friends for the date previous to that in the invitation, evidently because I was subconsciously anxious to go. More than once, I arrived at these houses a day or even two days prior to the party, as unconscious of this mistake as I was of the opposite one. These experiences happen to all of us, as when we find it so easy to be early at any affair we wish to attend, but late to those we dislike. This matter of our secret desires is illustrated by the kinds of things we dream about. How our dreams reveal us. Secret lies back of every dream and everything that happens in a dream. Though science has but recently discovered that secret, this discovery is so far-reaching and fundamental that already it has cleared up some of the deepest mysteries of human personality, aiding in the curing of all manner of physical diseases, mental disorders, and heretofore inexplicable ailments. 
The new insight it has given into the psychology of every human being and especially into his deepest desires has revolutionized the procedure of physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and all whose work it is to help humanity straighten out its tangles. This startling but strikingly scientific secret of the origin and meaning of dreams is that every dream is the fulfillment of one or more wishes that have been thwarted in our waking life. In other words, everything you have or do or say or experience in a dream is the expression of some desire, longing, craving, yearning, or wish which has been cheated of expression or repressed during the daytime. One look into your own dreams will prove to you that this is true. You will recall how many times you have been doing in your dreams what actuality prevented your doing. How your dreams contain so many more of the desired elements than does real life, and how much more intense are your dream experiences than those of reality. The poor who go to bed hungry or those who are dieting against their will will dream of feasts and banquets where the quantities of just the food they like the best. The man who retires thirsty dreams of cool springs, babbling brooks, steins of beer, goblets of wine, pitchers of ice water, or whatever kind of beverage he prefers. A young woman friend who homesteaded a dry farm in Montana told us that over and over again when she was most longing for it, she dreamed of finding a beautiful deep spring on her land. An intense repressed desire of any kind ultimately expresses itself in some form of our dreams. We dream of doing things we do not countenance in our waking thoughts, but we dream them because, subconsciously, we desire to do the thing or the thing it symbolizes. In many instances, the conscious mind is not aware of this desire at all, or, if it is, pushes it into the background for moral, ethical, or other reasons. No one should be blamed or criticized for the evil or immoral things he does in dreams. The fact that he dreams of doing them proves that he does not do them in waking life. Any desire that is fully gratified during the daytime is satisfied. It gets out of the system. It is only those we are prevented from getting off our chests in the day that we dream of at night. You live two lives, outer and inner. The outer one consists of what you say and do, the inner of what you think and wish. The world witnesses much of your surface life and decides from it that you are a certain kind of person. But you know, with poignant sadness, how little anyone knows of the real you. You have a thousand thoughts, desires, ambitions, and longings no one has ever dreamed you possessed. You have some faults, too, that they would be rather surprised to see. But you have beautiful ideas, sympathies for the sufferings of others, many generous impulses, and big hopes of helping humanity, which no one suspects and which you feel no one would understand, regardless of how hard you tried to explain them. One of these lives is your surface life, the other your submerged life. Each has its own consciousness, its own experiences, and operates in its own way. All the world's a stage, said Shakespeare, and all of us are actors and play many roles. The tenth part of your mind, which controls and handles your surface life, is, 
as stated, the conscious mind. It is at the helm during your waking hours. It directs the role you play in the many-act drama in which you appear day by day on the stage of your hourly existence. The part you play out here on the stage of this everyday conscious life is a part that has to conform to appearances. You say certain lines, you do certain things, you act a certain way because of the exigencies of life, the amenities, and the world in general demand it. These compel you to do a great many things you do not like to do under any conditions, in your social relationships, in your work, in your business, in your duties as a citizen, parent, friend, and as a member of society. The surface you, accompanied by the conscious tenth of your mind, is forced to go through these parts all the time you are awake. When you lose consciousness, out comes the other nine-tenths of your mind, the submerged you, and takes charge of the stage. In a flash, he clears away the trappings of that sordid, humdrum play called Every Day, and instantly up goes the curtain on the perfect, the ideal, the longed-for dreams of what I want. This is the dream and the stuff of which it is made. In it, all is as you desire. You are the star of the cast, the envied, the influential, the handsome, the powerful, the all-important personages around which everything else revolves. Your real self, halted, hampered, and hurt during the hours of consciousness, is now strong and free and favored in these hours when only subconsciousness reigns. In your dreams, you are always different from the person you are during the day. Instead of being at the mercy of reality, as you are in your waking hours, you begin to play some role you want to play, to act a part you want to act, to be some person you want to be, regardless of how fantastical these desires may be. In the dream, there are no laws, no rules, no regulations, no inhibitions. The dreamer harks back a million years before any of these restraints came to repress and civilize the intense, instinctive self of man to that ancient stage of human development when every creature was free to do as he pleased in just the degree that he was able to vanquish his enemies. This fact explains why we fight so hard in our dreams for what we desire and why the action is so much more crude than during our waking life. The conventional self which dominates us during the day gives way, at night, to the primitive self, which brooks no opposition, knows no defeat, has no scruples, no morals, no conventionalities, nothing but desires and their doings. Because the dream takes us back to the ancient stages where the keenest sense man possessed was the visual one, our dreams are mostly purely visual experiences. The senses of hearing, touching, tasting, and smelling, all of which figure prominently in our conscious life, are relegated to the rear in dreams because these were less acutely developed than sight in primitive man. Only those of the keenest auditory sense or gifted in music ever hear sounds in dreams. Only those whose gustatory senses are most highly developed ever taste things in dreams. Only those with the keenest of noses ever smell anything in a dream. Next in acuteness to the sense of sight is that of touch, and this figures frequently in dreams. 
But for the most part, we dream in mental pictures. The average dream is but a series of visual images, a moving picture in which we play the leading role which exists around and through and for our personal selves. In dreams, the mind places obstacles in our pathway for the joy the ego experiences in demolishing them. And this is especially true of the dreams of Americans who, more than any other people, measure a man's success by the difficulties he has overcome. This conclusion is based in our analysis of hundreds of individuals from almost every civilized country. In California, we recently conversed on this subject of the ego in dreams with an operatic star whose name is famous the world over. So famous that she was at the time traveling incognito to avoid the homage of the multitude and have a few days of rest and quiet. She told us a dream she had the night before. Here it is in her own words. I was always intensely desirous of fame. Even as a child, I knew I must be a great singer or life would not be worth living. I constantly pictured myself as a famous opera star, a silly performance for an unattractive little girl whose parents were as poverty-stricken as mine. As the eldest of a large family of children, I was responsible for little brothers and sisters who were constantly getting into the kinds of troubles that demanded my attention. This often irritated me beyond endurance and made me more incensed than anything in the world, except one. Our parents owned a small chicken farm, and when I was not having to leave my daydreams, fairy books, and personal pursuits to care for babies, I was being compelled to look after the chickens, see that they were let out occasionally, but kept away from the garden. I hated hurting those chickens with all the blind hate of childhood, I felt humiliated every time I had to look after them. Was that any business for a future star to be in, I used to think to myself? That was 25 years ago. Last week, I came to this little inn and registered under another name without letting anyone know who I was. No one suspected. The result was that I, who have been accustomed to homage and special attentions everywhere, was treated like the Miss Average American I was supposed to be no favors of any kind. In fact, quite the opposite. They gave me a North Room when I had specified a Southern exposure. The girl at the newsstand was flippant, a bellhop was insolent, and all around I suffered from inferior service, the kind most everybody gets these days, but which I have been spared for several years because wherever I went, they knew who I was. I suppose, in fact, I admit that all this irritated me. It humiliated and exasperated me. I could not get it off my mind. Had it not been for my intense desire to have a week of complete seclusion, I would have told them who I was at once. As it was decided, I would do so as I was leaving, just in time to get even with everybody. I went to sleep in that humiliated frame of mind, and this is what I dreamed. The flippant newsstand girl, accompanied by the bellboy who had been insolent, came to my door and told me to come down to the backyard. They rather ordered than invited me to come. I resented it, but felt I must be as dignified as possible. When we reached the backyard, it looked exactly like that backyard we had at home 25 years ago. There was the one scrubby tree, the weeds and stones, and general sordidness I remember so well as characterizing that rear lot of ours. 
These two pointed out to me a large flock of chickens running loose and told me that though it was their task to keep them out of the garden, they were going to a concert that afternoon and I must do it in their place. I bitterly resented this, especially their thinking I was such a non-entity as that. But the final insult came just as they were leaving. Here are the twins, they said, handing me over two soiled, squalling, squirming babies. I did not seem able to resist nor put into words my unutterable fury at this procedure. And before I could do anything, they were gone. I had a very interesting book and sat down to read, only to be incessantly interrupted by the babies getting into a nearby ditch and the chickens picking at the lettuce. For a while, I tried to carry out my orders, then decided I would show them. When they returned, the chickens had eaten up all the garden and the babies were wallowing in the water, completely covered with mud, their dresses hopelessly ruined. They rushed in, exclaiming that the concert was a great disappointment. The star had not appeared. Then they spied the babies and the chickens and began to scold me. I let them say just enough to get themselves in deep. Then I pointed to the western sky, which had by then darkened, and in which the evening star was just visible. There they saw, blazing across the firmament and illuminating the whole world, my name in letters of flame, millions of miles high. They gasped and exclaimed, why, that's the name of the star who didn't appear this afternoon. Whereupon I explained very modestly, even a star can't be in two places simultaneously, and I was here, you see. Then, as the horror of the thing they had done came over them and they began to apologize, I haughtily lifted my skirts away from them and their muddy babies and sailed off, leaving them utterly crushed and bitterly bewailing the fact that they had missed this chance with the world-famous star they adored. This dream is so obvious it scarcely requires explanation. Nevertheless, it is interesting to note how true to form it runs and how it illustrates almost every phrase and element of dreams. To begin with, the opera star's dream has the clarity, vividness, and intensity which characterizes most of the dreams of successful people. Any individual who is getting from everyday life so much satisfaction, fame, and fortune as this illustrious woman does not think in the double symbols which are forced upon the unsuccessful or disappointed. Things as they are being highly gratifying to her, this woman thinks in terms of things as they are, with little subterfuge, pretense, or symbolization. The star's ego had been wounded by the newsstand girl and the bellhop, and she reasoned thus to herself. They would treat me differently and differentially if they dreamed who I was. So in her dreams, these two unappreciative people whom she supposes know of and adore the person she really is and would give anything to associate with her personally, are reduced to utter humiliation, and she triumphs gloriously. All the ignominy she permits herself to suffer tending the chickens and the twins is endured for the sole purpose of thoroughly humiliating those two people who snubbed her during the day. You know how she didn't really tend the garden nor the babies very long, but got her revenge even before the parents returned by letting the babies ruin their dresses and the chickens ruin the garden. In her dream, she achieved complete revenge, even to the sailing off with her skirts held away from them 
as she would like to do in the hotel lobby. The babies and chicken tending were old images stored away in her subconscious from childhood and used in this dream as symbolizing the extreme humiliation which she felt when ignored and insulted by the girl and the bellhop. Her name, lighting up the entire sky in letters of fire, is the one mental image which, above all others, would symbolize fame in the mind of one who had always been ambitious. The evening star was a very obvious symbol of herself. The star, closely connected with the famous and shining name, blazing there in the firmament for all the world to see. This dream differs from the average dream in that it was exceedingly long and at the same time coherent and integrated from beginning to end. There were no missing links, no disjointed parts. The entire experience was vivid, coordinated, with every part fitting into place like a mosaic into a pattern. I often remember snatches of dreams, she said, and fleeting dream experiences that do not appear to belong anywhere, but this one was as definite and dramatic as a play, with nothing extraneous, nothing isolated. It was more clear, in fact, than almost any actual experience I ever had. This latter fact is often true of our dreams and for two excellent reasons. The first is that the dream is a product of the subconscious, which constitutes nine-tenths of the mind and is nine times more powerful. The second is that in dreams, our attention is not diverted by irrelevant or marginal things, such as distract us during waking hours, but is concentrated exclusively on the dream. You will recall how in dreams you are never interrupted by other people's taking the stage and are never aware of any time, place, or condition other than those of your dream. My dreams seem to be nothing but leftovers from the day's experiences, says many a one, and this, at first glance, seems to be the only tangible significance of most of our dreams. But that there is a far deeper meaning you may see for yourself by noting that though many a dream begins with some event of the day, it never sticks to the facts of the original occurrence, but branches off into other directions, injecting all manner of new details which are in themselves irrelevant. In every instance, you will note that the dream is built around a recent event which was in some way a disappointment to you. In the dream, you go back and make changes to suit your subconscious self. You live over certain elements of the experience or live it over up to a certain point. From that point onward, instead of adhering to what actually happened, the dream carries out what you wish had happened. And now we come to one of the most interesting things about dreams, their symbolism. As you have read this lesson, Perhaps you have been thinking, but how can my dreams come from my desires? Why, I have often had dreams in which I did things I didn't like and experienced all manner of things I didn't desire. This apparently paradoxical condition delayed for many centuries science's unraveling of the real meaning of our dreams. Then a few years ago, there was discovered the most significant fact of all, that we dream not only in pictures, but that those pictures are full of symbols. In other words, the subconscious, which is in control of our dreams, is full of symbols, each of which represents, in the mind of the individual, something very definite. 
This symbol stands for the definite something because of its having been connected with some experience of the individual's life, usually in his childhood, in such a way as to fasten it into his subconscious mind. There are several reasons for this, the chief one being that the subconscious is not a reasoning, but a feeling, knowing mind. It simplifies all things, reduces them to their lowest common denominator. So when the individual passes through some especially vivid experience, it is filed away in the memory, not as a detailed, minutely recorded thing like a page of statistics, but as a highly colored picture. In every case, the picture will relate to whichever element was experienced at the moment of the highest pitch of emotion. This emotional element is what makes any experience vivid in memory. More will be explained concerning these pictures and their far-reaching effect upon the individual's life in the next lesson. Before the present, it is sufficient to know that your mind has automatically been filing away these symbols ever since you were born and that very early in life, you acquired one for almost every kind of thought, feeling, or group of thoughts and sensations you experienced. Dreams being almost exclusively in pictures staged by the subconscious deal in wholesale fashion with these old mental pictures of ours. The best illustration of how the subconscious mind utilizes old symbols in the making of new dreams is seen every day in the office of big city newspapers. Every newspaper has filed away, numbered, and indexed every picture it has printed in previous issues. This department is known fittingly, though uncannily, as the morgue. These pictures correspond to the pictures you unconsciously filed away in your subconscious as symbolizing your previous experiences. That your subconscious, like the newspaper office, files these away at the time and then forgets them till they are needed again makes the analogy a perfect one. There are thousands of these old pictures, photos, illustrations, cartoons, and diagrams stored away in the newspaper's morgue. The keeper of the morgue remembers only the merest fraction of them. But when a striking thing happens, when something breaks, as the newspaper world says, the morgue is called upon for any pictures which can be utilized to illustrate the story in that day's issue. This accounts for the fact that you sometimes see ancient photos with hats, coiffures, and clothes that have been out of style for 20 years used in connection with new stories. The editor used these only for lack of newer ones. New pictures of private individuals are not easily secured by newspapers, just as new symbols are not easily acquired by your subconscious mind. And as the newspaper is compelled to use pictures, symbols, representing an individual as he appeared at some function or affair 20 or 30 years ago, so the subconscious digs up and uses in our dreams old, old symbols which stand for experiences, thoughts, and emotions which we experienced many years ago. Your conscious mind may be likened to the city editor who keeps in momentary touch with everything happening around him. Your subconscious acts and reacts precisely as does the keeper of the newspaper's picture gallery. It takes no more notice of what is passing in your immediate surroundings moment by moment than the morgue keeper takes of the news happening in the great city. That isn't his job. 
But when anything exciting or interesting, and especially when something highly dramatic or sensational happens in your everyday life, either as a desire or an actual experience, the city editor of your conscious mind reports it to the keeper of your old subconscious picture gallery, and he furnishes the illustrations for the picturesque edition that floats before your mind in the form of dreams that night. Every dream gets its original impulse from some recent personal experience or desire which hinges on something that has just previously happened or been hoped for, as does every story or article printed in the daily paper. By 10 o'clock in the morning, the dreams of the night before are as out of date and forgotten as is the newspaper of the day before. The conscious mind is busy, just as is the city editor, with the problems of the present, getting ready to print a new edition. What the dream edition prints in your mind's eye that night will depend on which of the day's experiences have most intimately and emotionally affected the ego or your subconscious wishes. This accounts for the fact that we dream many dreams during each night, some related and some unrelated to each other. Though many people do not recall their dreams the next day, no one has yet been found who, when suddenly awakened, was not in the midst of some sort of dream. He may forget it an instant afterward, but he will have at least some slight realization on the instant of waking that he was having some kind of dream sensation. When you dream of having things or doing things you dislike or are indifferent to, that is, whenever the desire is not apparent in a dream, think back through your experiences and see if you cannot recall what the dream pictures symbolize in the back of your mind. For the following law operates in every dream. When a dream contains elements which are, so far as we know, underlined by the conscious mind, these elements are symbolic of something which is deeply desired either by the conscious or subconscious mind, and usually by both. Nightmares are merely dreams containing desires whose symbols are not pleasant ones, and in which the action, which is also symbolic, becomes so intense it awakens the conscious mind from sleep. A case illustrating the use of symbols in staging subconscious wishes and dreams came under our notice several years ago. A nurse of high standing in San Francisco wishes to have analyzed the following dream, which had recurred until it had become an obsession. She said, The hospital has an insufficient staff of nurses, so I am busy all day and part of the night. This has continued for many months, and I am getting so worn out physically that unless I am able to free myself of the distracting dream, which often awakens me with its horror, I shall have to resign. Every time I fall asleep, if only for a moment, I have this dream. I am standing at the foot of a bed in the ward, where of course I have witnessed many deaths. The white screen, which we always place around a cot in the last moments, looms up in this dream as clearly as it does in my waking hours. But instead of a stranger, it is one of the former hospital doctors who lies there dying. I see his agony and the death struggle, his appeal to me to save him. But just as I try to do something, the dream ends, soon to begin all over again. The full understanding of her dream so clarified the subconscious of this young woman that in four days, it ceased to recur, a recovery much more rapid than is possible in most cases. 
Her frankness, sincerity, and previous scientific training, added to the fact that the dream was easily analyzed according to the symbols, made the cure a simple one. The deathbed had become, unconsciously, a very significant symbol in the nurse's mind, the symbol of something she deeply desired. She had, despite valiant efforts to the contrary, and despite the fact that she would not admit it to herself, fallen in love with one of the hospital physicians who was already married. Some months prior to her coming to us, this physician had resigned from the hospital board and had moved to another city. The last time she had seen him was when they officiated jointly at a deathbed scene in the ward. She had lived this last moment with him over so vividly, had recalled the emotions which she had been torn at the time, knowing, as she did, that he was leaving, that it became fixed in the subconscious as a symbol of his presence. Subconsciously, she had longed to have the wife's place, to minister to him, endear herself to him, and be able to do something very great for him, something that would make him care. To save man's life is the surest, quickest route into his gratitude and affection, so the subconscious devised this little drama. When she met her situation frankly, and when she realized that the dream came from her own mind and was not, as she had feared, a premonition of the impending death of the doctor, the condition cleared immediately. A dream composed entirely of symbols recurred to a woman on average of two or three nights a week for over 25 years. She said, in this dream, I am laboriously climbing over huge boulders, deep ravines, and tremendous crags in my efforts to reach the top of a high mountain whose sides are almost perpendicular. Far down below, straight down below in the bottom of the canyon, there dashes over the rocks a mad, rushing, foaming river. I am constantly on the lookout to prevent myself from falling, for I know I would be mangled to death long before I reach the bottom if I should lose my footing. Now, the strange part of this is that I am never really frightened by this great height, nor actually in danger of falling, for I am wearing thick-soled, heavy mountain shoes, which enable me to secure a sure and solid footing. Though I can never climb as rapidly as I desire, I am always making good progress. Another strange thing in this dream is that I always have one boon companion, William Jennings Bryan. He walks by my side though he never takes hold of my hand nor offers to help me. But he is extremely courteous, and we chat pleasantly and in the most simple, friendly way as we climb upward. A great many people are in our party, but Mr. Brian and I seem to be finding the path by which they are to climb. Every little while, we lean over the precipice and call down to them. They make headway, and some of them climb very fast. These seem happy and exceedingly grateful to us for showing them the way and blazing the trail. In this dream, Mr. Brian and I are very simply clothed, he in an old-fashioned suit and I in a durable brown serge. Mr. Brian carries in his right hand exactly 16 different kinds of flowers, columbines, brown-eyed Susans, and other wild flowers, while my arms seem to be loaded with those dark red blooms called bleeding hearts. This dream, so symbolical from beginning to end, is crystal clear when the woman's supreme subconscious wish, plus her childhood experiences, are made known. She had grown up in the wildest part of the Rocky Mountains, and the mountains became to her the symbols of the heights to which her ambition pointed. This ambition was to be a great orator, an orator like Brian, 
whom she had first heard of when he ran for president in 1896. Mr. Bryan became to her the symbol of her oratorical ambition. Having lived all her life in the fastness of the mountains, this young woman's symbols all bore the marks of her early environment. This accounted for the fact that though she was a woman of middle age when she told her dream and had for many years lived exclusively in great cities, the symbols in the dream had never changed. Neither did the dream elements alter so much as a hair's breadth. And the reason for this, too, is obvious. Her ambition, her supreme subconscious wish, had never changed. From her youth, she had desired one thing above all others, to be a great speaker. And though she desired it so much that she became a well-known lecturer, she still dreamed the dream because she had never reached the complete fulfillment of her ambition. She came, in years, to have audiences which filled the largest auditoriums, but she had other ambitions than speaking to great crowds, though this element was naturally always present in her desires. That Mr. Bryan carried 16 kinds of flowers to one was amusingly symbolical of Bryan's first slogan, 16 to 1. The most significant symbol in this dream is that of the bleeding heart flowers that loaded down her arms. She grew up in poverty, and her youth was black with those hardships known only to pioneer and especially mountain pioneer regions. At an early age, she came to sympathize with all the poor and struggling because of her own struggles in poverty and to think of their broken hearts in the terms of the bleeding heart flowers that grew on the mountains near her home. She longed to help these others who were poor and ambitious up the heights along with herself and wanted to do it through oratory, the simple, sincere kind Brian used. In all her dreams, even after she came to realize this ambition in great measure, she dreamed the same thing over and over because she was still struggling, still climbing, still trying to go higher and take more people. Sometimes their burdens seemed to load her down, as did the flowers they symbolized, but always they made progress, and always she was confident she would not fall into the canyon symbolizing failure because she wore mountain shoes and planted her feet solidly on the ground. They were symbolic also of her certainty that she had stood on solid scientific ground, that she had grounded herself in what she was teaching, that she had a good foundation for what she was doing. Her plain brown serge symbolized the simplicity which the woman had always held as an ideal. This dream is more pleasant than otherwise, containing just enough of the struggle element to stimulate the courage and test the ambition. So she has never tried to be rid of it, and indeed is better for having the greatest ambitions and ideals run off in this dream movie to keep her reminded that the top has not yet been reached. The subconscious has been called the treasure vault of memory. In it is preserved the record of everything we have ever heard, seen, read, or learned. It never forgets everything you ever knew, you know still, whether your memory is able to dive down and bring it from the bottom of your consciousness at this moment or not. One reason why all persons are not able to do this now is that we have, until the last few years, been ignorant of the fact that the mind did remember and have taken it for granted that things passed entirely out of our mental grasp, that we had forgotten. A clearer understanding of the subconscious enables even the beginner to revive in consciousness many things he had imagined 
completely erased from memory. The subconscious is always on the alert. We now know with complete certainty that it never sleeps. In fact, that it is more active when the conscious mind sleeps than during our waking hours. We have seen proof of this many times in our own lives, as, for instance, when we can awaken without an alarm clock to catch a 4 a.m. train if we really want to take the journey. Nurses in hospital wards full of patients sleep soundly through all manners of outcries, but awaken at the whispered request of their own patients. A mother sleeps through many disturbances, but rouses at the merest movement of her sick child. The countryman, upon coming to the city, is unable to sleep the first few nights, but his subconscious soon adapts itself, and he sleeps as soundly through those same noises a week later as he did out on the farm. Does the mind have a body, or does the body have a mind? Is a question over which the philosophers have wrangled for centuries. Today we know that both are true, and that the subconscious mind, of which these ancient arguers were unaware, is the bridge between the body and the mind. The conscious mind functions through the brain, but the subconscious functions throughout the entire body. The cerebrum, the muscles, the solar plexus, the nerves, apparently through every cell in both body and brain. That this is no far-fetched theory is shown in the fact that its first American exponent was that greatest living material scientist, Thomas A. Edison. He says, every cell in us thinks, and has proven to his own satisfaction that nothing is dead matter, but all is living energy expressing itself in various forms. There have always been those who realized the influence of these submerged selves of ours, and there is not a thinking human but who realizes that many things in his life, however much they may mystify others, are but the outward expression of something in his inner life. But it requires an unusually high grade of intelligence and an unusually frank heart to acknowledge what mental analysis shows us so clearly today, that your money, your possessions, your good luck and bad luck, your ill health or perfect health, your environment, your life as a whole, are the harvests from seeds you planted in the soil of your subconscious in days gone by. But whether you realize it or not, these things are true. You are reaping what you have sown. The results are in accordance with laws, laws that are inexorable, unchanging, and absolutely impersonal. Your life today is the net result of your yesterdays. Your tomorrows will be the net result of those yesterdays plus the seeds you are planting today, this hour and this instant. The only way to make the tomorrows what you wish them to be is to learn what you have already planted, how to uproot the weak and cultivate the strong things that are growing in your personality, and how to plant from this hour onward only the seeds whose fruit you desire to reap in your coming years. This course, by showing you these things, can enable you to remake your life as it has already done for thousands of our former students. All great souls have recognized and declared that they were strangely aided by something within themselves, but which they did not reason out. Every famous composer has said, no, I can't tell you how I thought out the music because I did not do so. It came to me. I put down what came. Every great poet has said, 
I cannot tell you how I wrote this poem because I do not know. It set itself in my mind and I wrote it down. Every famous orator has said, the right thoughts never come when I am trying to write out a speech. My audience is the other half of me. The best ideas come only when I am face to face with the crowd. Every illustrious minister has declared, the best parts of my sermon are never written in my study, but come into my mind as I stand before my congregation. The flash of inspiration, which comes to the lawyer at the crucial moment in his trial of a case, comes not from his conscious, but from his subconscious mind, as he will tell you himself. The reason so few people achieve greatness is not that there are but few with the spark of genius in them, but the source of greatness, the subconscious mind, is clogged in all but the few. The mental machinery of most people is full of monkey wrenches and junk. The brakes are all on and the cylinders are skipping. The average mind is as disorganized as a rag bag. Almost every individual leads a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde life, with part of his mind pulling one way and another pulling the opposite. Then he wonders why this split personality makes no more progress. There is no mystery about it. Such a man is never able to present a solid front to the world. A unified personality is the first requisite for success or happiness under any condition whatever. The energies, mentality, and interests of the average individual are disorganized, disrupted, chaotic, jumbled in a mixed-up heap. Few people see the ruinous effect of this splitting of the personality, and some even consider it an achievement. A man calls himself clever when he is able to live one life outwardly and another inwardly. He is able to appear at a social affair disliking the whole thing the guests, the interruption to his business, even the hostess, and all the while talk and act as though charmed, flattered, delighted, and happy. Good gracious, what an insufferable bore, he exclaims to his wife the instant they are out of earshot. Society compels me to lead this double life, he will say. My business requires it. Social amenities demand it. And to an extent, these are true. But we are coming to realize that insincerity of any kind reacts back on the personality with fatal consequences. First among these consequences is the disintegrating of the consciousness, and no man can succeed whose two minds are not working in harmony. It is not easy to lead double lives, even though they be comparatively innocent ones. Concealed facts are always popping out into open sight. Slips of the tongue, glances and postures, a hundred things betray the man who would keep out of sight his real and actual self. The subconscious is like a vast irrigation system with every muscle a tiny headgate into the great network. A man may learn to watch one or two or even a dozen of these headgates in eyes, mouth, voice, and manner, but they are so numerous he cannot watch them all, and from whence he least expects it, there will break out the telltale overflow. This latest of the human sciences shows us what we have been doing to ourselves, our lives, our chances in life, our loves, hopes, and aspirations, how we have been unconsciously poisoning our own wells at the source, how we have administered mental narcotics to ourselves when we most needed mental stimulation, how we have built up the present from our own individual, racial, and biological past into a structure in which we now live and through which 
our personalities function, express themselves, and meet the world. It shows how we may easily and immediately reverse the process and begin to get the things we want out of life. The laws which rule us and our lives are divine, unalterable. He who obeys them, whether he do so consciously or unconsciously, reaps the rewards that other people call good luck. He who consciously or unconsciously violates them pays the penalties he calls his bad luck. The supremest effort of life, therefore, should be to learn what the laws are which rule human happiness and how they operate, that we may consciously and constantly plant the seeds for the harvests we want. This course in mental analysis has made these laws so clear, concise, graphic, and understandable that anyone can put them to use in the solving of his everyday problems. They bring results from the first moment of applying them in happiness, health, and success. Some may say these things sound impossible. It is inevitable that some would say this. Every step in human progress has been opposed at first and forced to fight its way to recognition against skepticism and criticism. Thinking men and women know that the human race is in the infant stage of its development, that a few hundred years from now, human beings will be doing things as beyond our present achievements as ours are beyond those of prehistoric man. And those who have given the subject thought realize that this progress is coming, as it has already begun to come, through the one thing that has given man sovereignty over the globe, further understanding and development of his consciousness.